I'm excited to preach today. Last week, I missed out on the opportunity. We uh, had to cancel our service because it was freezing cold in here, but the sun was shining like it is today. But uh, then the Rulos opened up their house to us. We met over there, and it was amazing. It was such a good morning of just worship. And we sang songs. We spent time praying and sharing. And friends, I keep saying that I feel that we're in the midst of a revival. We're at the beginning of a revival. And I'm not talking about a nationwide revival or where we're Billy Graham crusades with 30,000 people coming in. I, I mean like the revival within our hearts. Like God is doing something in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages and relationships. And I see his hand at work and I'm excited to be part of it. I'm excited with what is happening. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being open to what God's doing in your life, for being responsive to, to his promptings and his, his nudges, and just for your faithfulness, your generosity, your prayers. Just thank you. So we're in this message series that's called Things Jesus Never Said. And you might be asking why on earth we're focusing on things Jesus didn't say. And it's because in order to fully understand the power of what Jesus did say, it sometimes helps to just be able to focus on what he didn't say or what we might have said if it was us with his power and who he was. So in the first four books of the New Testament of the Bible, you have the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're reading through those, you'll notice in some of the translations of your Bible that there are letters and words that are in red. And those are marked red to indicate that those are actually the words of Jesus. So the purpose is to find the true power of what Jesus said in those words. But like I said, sometimes it helps us to see it from a different perspective and by looking at what he didn't say. So today we're going to look at what Jesus didn't say. And the one thing he didn't say is go do what you want. And my clicker doesn't seem to be happening, working anymore. So Nick, I'm going to throw you on it. So... <laughs> The first thing Jesus didn't say is go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. This would make my job a lot easier if this were the case. He also didn't say whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their own heart. He didn't say it. And then this one is awesome. Jesus didn't say ask and it will be given to you because God is your celestial sugar daddy. <laughs> He's not your lucky rabbit's foot. He's not your four-leaf clover. He didn't say that about happiness. So today I want to look together at John's gospel, John chapter 8. And we're going to look at a relatively long story, but that has incredible power and application to every single one of us today. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. There's some in, in uh, the, the, do I call them pews? In the, in the chairs here. And uh, you can follow along and you can just simply keep your finger in it because what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through the scripture passage and work through the story in John chapter 8. So we're going to kind of be jumping in and out of it. And then at the end of this story, we're going to look very specifically at what Jesus did not say because what he did say has the power and the potential to transform our lives. So at verse 2 of John 8, the story starts this way. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. 
He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees, these were people who looked very religious on the outside but were generally hypocritical on the inside. The teachers and the Pharisees of the law brought a woman caught in adultery. So let's pause here for a moment because I want you to visualize this. Jesus is out in the town square and he's essentially leading a life group or a Bible study. It could even be at the square right by the Tim Hortons, the intersection of 56 and Binbrook Road. Just imagining him standing there, sitting there, teaching those who are following him. Then some hypocritical religious men drag a woman who was caught in the, the act of adultery. And there's a couple things that we'd explore if we had more time. But one is, where's the man in the story? He ain't there. So that's one thing. Secondly, where were you when you found a woman caught in the act of adultery? That's a whole nother story. Where's this guy peeping? But nonetheless, these guys bring a woman caught in the act of adultery And you could imagine if she's caught in the act, she's probably barely dressed, wearing anything, and they drag her to the town square. And this would have been the lowest, most humiliating moment of her life. And what's interesting is the men didn't care about her. They were just using her as a tool to get at Jesus. And you'll see in the upcoming part of the story that this was their motive. So they made this woman stand before the group and then said to Jesus, Oh, I think my clicker is working. (laughs) That's not what they said to Jesus. They said this, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So imagine, they're going to publicly throw rocks at her until she dies a horrible death. And they ask Jesus, what do you say? So verse 6 shows us the motives behind their question. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. They put Jesus in what appears to be this lose-lose situation, a no-win, because according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. And it's crazy I have to make this disclaimer, but hopefully you know that we're not talking about being stoned for medicinal purposes or recreational use. We're We're talking about being stoned by rocks. So... Culture nowadays, just want to make that clear. So the law of Moses says this should happen. So Jesus is in an odd spot because if he agrees that, yeah, go ahead and kill her, well, then he loses his reputation for being full of grace and being loving. If, on the other hand, he says, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Let's make an exception. Well, then he's breaking the law of Moses and apparently condoning the sin of adultery. So what in the world is Jesus going to do? He's in the lose-lose situation. Well, verse 6 at the end of the verse says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And it's interesting. They ask him a question and he kneels down and he starts scribbling on the ground. And what I love about it is that here she is, barely dressed, barely clothed, standing in the town square in front of all these other men and religious leaders. And Jesus then bends down and starts writing. So right away, their attention goes to what Jesus is writing on the ground. And I love the heart behind this because I believe Jesus is already showing his love, care, and concern for this woman by taking their attention off of her and onto the ground. But of course, this raises the question that everybody's been asking ever since. What did he write on the ground? And the answer is, we don't know. It doesn't say. We've never been given that. But we do have some ideas, but they are just educated guesses at best. 
But later manuscripts and commentaries say that Jesus wrote the sins of the hypocritical men who were accusing this woman. Now, we don't know for sure if it's true, but I think there is merit to this because there's two different Greek words that can be translated to write down. The first word is graphen, and it means to write down. The other word, and the word that is actually used in the Greek translation, is katagraphen, and kata means against. So the Greek word used here is katagraphen, meaning to write down against. So whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, it was something against someone or against something. So to visualize this, Jesus is looking out at the Pharisees, and maybe he sees Phil, Phil the Pharisee. And so he writes down in the sand, Phil, I'm the son of God, so I know about your browser history. I don't have to go too far back to see that last Tuesday you were searching for bikini babes and whatever it is, you know? And perhaps he's writing down the sins of those who are bringing an accusation against this woman. And suddenly they realize, oh man, that's my name. That's my sin on the ground. I need to get out of here before he keeps going. So the story goes on. When they kept questioning Jesus, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, if I'm not about to write your name down with whatever you did, well, then you can throw the first stone. And what's interesting, again, in the original language, when it says without sin, it doesn't just mean whoever is without sin, but the Greek word also means, but not, not only did you not sin, but you weren't even capable of sinning. You didn't even want to sin. So it literally means without even wanting to sin. That changes the whole dynamic because suddenly you're like, oh man, well, I didn't follow through on it, but I sure thought about it. I sure wanted to. And I don't know about you, but there's a, been a lot of times when I didn't follow through on things, but there was a part of me that wanted to, right? It's true. And I'm really good at pointing out other people's sins, but man, I'm pretty good at covering up my own. We all are. In fact, at the prayer station we went down to uh, at GoHop, there was this cool exercise and there was a mirror on the wall and it had kind of this outline that you could put your face in and there was a log coming out of the mirror and then it had all the specks and just kind of pointing out that, do we see the log that's in our own eye? Like it's so easy to point out the sins of everyone else about this woman caught in adultery, but to forget the one that's sticking out of our own eye. It's amazing how easy it is to point the finger at other people when we're doing the very same thing or perhaps something even worse. So whoever is not only without sin, but you've never even wanted to sin, you can pick up the rock and be the first one to hurl it at this woman who was so ashamed. And then verse 8 says, Again, Jesus stooped down, and he's writing on the ground, and at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Phil left first, Phil the Pharisee, I added that in, but then the older ones left until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But here's what he did not say. 
Jesus did not say, then neither do I condemn you, so now go do whatever makes you happy. He didn't say, go now and just follow your own heart. Doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody. Go now, you do you, boo. Do whatever makes you happy. Jesus didn't say this. Instead, he asked her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And this is what he did say. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. This wasn't a condemning, judgmental statement. This was full of love. And you can feel the urgency. He's saying, go now, don't wait, be free. Go wait, go now, don't wait, live a better life. Don't wait, go. You don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live for the lower things of this world. You don't have to be afraid or live in darkness. I've set you free. Now go and be free from your life of sin. It's full of love and full of grace. You don't have to be held hostage anymore. You're free to go and walk in the truth. But why is it that so many of us, including me, give in to temptation so often? The answer is it looks appealing, right? It, it looks fun. How many people agree that sin can be fun? <laughs> I know you're thinking like, oh, I'm not going to answer that in church, like lightning. <laughs> but <laughs> let's face it, sin can be fun, right? Hebrews calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's pleasurable for a little while. Sin can be fun, and if you don't think it's fun, well, you're not doing it right or you're lying because, let's be honest here, it's fun for a little while, but eventually it will mess you up. So what does sin and temptation do? Well, sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. I want to say that again. Sin and temptation, it promises satisfaction that you're going to like this. It's going to be good. It's going to make you feel happy. You're going to really enjoy it. It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. So try for a moment to get in the mind of this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. We have no idea what type of woman she was. Maybe she was this evil woman who just woke up one day and said, I'm going to go wreck someone's marriage. I'm just going to have as much sex as I can. Maybe she was like that. Odds are she wasn't like that. Odds are, and we're going to modernize this for our modern day context, but odds are she was probably a decent kind of God-fearing woman. And just imagining it in today's context to help us visualize it, perhaps she was in a marriage that just fell flat. They, they, they loved each other a lot. The passion was there at the beginning, but then it went flat. Maybe her husband just took her for granted, didn't appreciate her. Maybe he was verbally abusive. Who knows? Maybe even worse. So perhaps she goes, she gets a job, feels a little bit better about herself. She's working next to all sorts of people, including this guy who starts showing her a little bit more interest. And it's kind of fun, flirty, and it's nothing much at the beginning, but she enjoys it. Then after a while, he starts paying a little more attention to her. And again, it's just innocent, but he, he compliments her. She gets her hair done, highlights, cuts, and he notices it. And her husband hadn't even noticed it that week. Then she finds herself looking forward to the interactions with him. And she doesn't really want to, but her heart starts kind of moving in that direction and away from her husband. He starts following her on Instagram. He starts liking, commenting on her posts, sliding into the DMs. It's, and then one day, they both end up staying late at work. He opens up about his marriage. His wife isn't so good either. 
Then a few weeks later, he tells her, I think I made a mistake. I shouldn't have married her. I wish I had married someone like you. And then he accidentally brushes up against her and the sparks fly. And then she starts to think, well, he would make me happy. So she tells her girlfriend and her girlfriend says, follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. You do you. So we don't know how it happened and all the details around this, but step by seemingly innocent step, one insignificant decision after another, or seemingly so, she finds herself now barely dressed in the most publicly shamed moment of her life. How did she get there? Sin promises a satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to yourself. It's just one step at a time. So why do so many of us end up in similar places today? Well, we live in a very relativistic culture. And what does the idea of relativism mean? Well, relativism is the belief that everything is relative. There's no absolute truth. And you hear this all the time in culture. What may be true to you isn't true to me. That's your truth, but I have a different truth. You live your truth and I'll live my truth. I think that's the heat. (laughs) Relativism says there's no such thing as an absolute truth. So I'm just gonna do whatever makes me happy. But here's the fundamental problem with that. Without a belief in absolute truth, then truth is defined by whatever makes me happy. And you can see all the problems with that. When the bottom line is my happiness, then happiness becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. If it makes me happy, well, it must be good. If it doesn't make me happy, it must be bad. And I know everyone says this is wrong, but it feels so right. So what is the root cause of this problem? Well, for many of us, the problem is that we think that happiness and holiness are at odds. Deep down, somehow because of our distorted view of what Christ represents and teaches, we tend to think you have to choose one or the other, holiness or happiness. And if you choose holiness, like I want to be holy, I want to follow Christ and become like him, well then you're destined for a life of being miserable forever. And I remember in elementary school when friends would bug me about this and they'd be like, oh, Bernie, Like, you're a Christian? Like, that means you can't do anything fun. And it's funny because I was probably in grade seven or eight in this memory that I have of it. And we weren't really at an age that we could get into much trouble. (laughs) But then when I got older, I decided to leave my faith behind because I was having more fun in the party life. I won't go into all the details, but I remember the day when there was this clear decision between following Jesus or going to the party. And I chose that party. And I ripped up an application that I had for a Bible school down in Chicago, threw it in the trash. For the next four years, I lived how I wanted to, what made me happy. Because I fell into the trap of thinking, well, if I really devote myself to following Christ, then I'm not going to have any fun. I'm going to be destined to a life of wearing pleated khaki pants, the golf shirt tucked in, maybe listening to Sandy Patty cassettes forever. If you don't know who Sandy Patty is, you can ask Eugene after. <laughs> I don't know. My, my parents loved Sandy Patty. That's the first one that came to my mind. <laughs> 
But please know this, our God in heaven is not looking down upon you, you whom he loves and saying, for God so loved the world that he wants his children to be holy and miserable. He's not saying that. He is a good and loving father. In fact, Jesus said this about him. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, right? We love to spoil our kids and our grandkids. We want to see them happy. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If we find ourselves at odds with, I want to be holy, but I don't want to be unhappy, the problem is you're looking for happiness in the wrong place. You're looking at a lower place where God designed you for a higher place. In fact, Max Lucado and Craig Rochelle, they have a great illustration around this. And I believe it started with Max and Craig developed it from there. And if it falls flat, well, blame my delivery of it. But they ask this question, would a fish ever be happy on the beach? Visualize it. You take a fish out of water, you put it on the beach. And the answer is no. They're kind of just flopping around. Well, Imagine if you give some, the fish some things from this world to help the fish feel happy. We give it a pile of cash and we're flipping dollar bills their way, not just change and loose coins, but we're giving them piles of money. Is the fish going to be happy now? No. Well, what if instead we threw a party for the fish and we get all the other best looking fish out of the, the ocean and the lakes and we put them in there to party and put on some beats, boom, 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 boom. No, they're not going to be happy. What if we add some margaritas to the party? What if they start taking the, some of the best pictures and their Instagram blows up and it's fire, 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 you hot. Is the fish happy? No. We get the fish a magazine, Playfish magazine. Work with me here. So, ooh, look at the fins on that fish. They're still not gonna be happy. The fish will never be happy. And why is that? Because the fish was not created for the beach. And if you find yourself wondering why you aren't happy, living for things of this world, maybe you should lower your expectations of earth because you were not created for this earth. You were created by God, for God, to live for things that are not of this world. And that's why sin promises and never delivers. It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. So here's what you need to understand, and this is so important. Holiness isn't mutually exclusive of happiness. In fact, they're very, very related. Holiness is the pathway to true happiness and joy. They're not mutually exclusive. They're united. They're connected. Serving God, living for Him, not the lower things of this world, but for the higher things that are eternal, that is the pathway to true happiness, to true joy, to true meaning in life. I love the way David said it in Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, you, God, will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Not the fleeting pleasures of sin, but the eternal pleasures. And that's why when the woman who is guilty as we're guilty was caught in the most shame-filled moment of her life, Jesus didn't look at her and say, I'm embarrassed by you. I'm embarrassed by your behavior. After all I've done for you, this is how you repay me? No, Jesus said, there's so much better. Be free 
Go walk in truth. Go now. Leave the lower things of this sin-filled world and live for the things that really matter in life. So what do you do when you know what's right but you keep doing what's wrong? What do you do when you feel trapped? It looked good. It promised something, but it didn't deliver. And now you can't find your way out. Well, for me, it was during the first half of my master's degree at West. I had to take a course on pastoral counseling. And I sat there and read through the material and sat through the lectures. And week after week, I just kept getting hit with, I don't need to learn this stuff to help others. I need this stuff. I need some pastoral counseling in my life. Because you see, I just resigned from my youth ministry position. I just found out Amanda was expecting our first child. We decided that we were going to uproot our life in BC and move back to Ontario. Not just that, but move into the basement of her parents. And I know I shared a couple weeks ago the, the, um, the difficulties I had with my lead pastor and the reconciliation that took place later on. Well, at this point in the story, that reconciliation hadn't even happened. I was still very hurt. Like, I wasn't allowed to say his name in our house. I could drop an F-bomb and Amanda wouldn't blink. Well, maybe she'd blink a little. But if I said his name, she would stop me dead in my tracks. And she'd say no, because I was about to spiral out of control. So I started drinking more to numb all these feelings. Now, I didn't abuse alcohol at this point in my life. That was a much earlier story. But I did know that I was drinking in order to numb the pain, in order to numb what was going on. I love what my counselor said. I started going to counseling around the same time too, and this was almost 10 years ago now. And she said, Kevin, you can't numb, or you can't pick and choose what you numb. You, if you try to numb the negative emotions, you're also gonna numb the positive emotions. You can't pick and choose. And that really impacted me because I had also recently come clean with Amanda about a pornography addiction. We'd been married for about five years at this point. And this rocked her world because she had no idea that I was struggling with this, that I was addicted to it, that I was going to it often because I had hidden it so well up until then. So what do you do when you know it's wrong, but you can't get out? What do you do when you're a pastor taking a pastoral counseling course to help others, but you realize you need it yourself? Well, it might not be beer or alcohol for you, but it might be something else. You're medicating something. You're trying to fill a void, maybe with approval. Will people like me enough? Maybe it's something you smoke or something you pop, or maybe you feel empty on the inside, so you just start eating more, and you, you're embarrassed by it, and you try to hide it, but you just keep doing it. Perhaps to fill the feeling of emptiness, you, you just keep ordering new things on Amazon, and you wait for that little package to arrive, and you're checking your app constantly, and, and maybe new shoes, purses, laptops, phones. For some of you, it might just be a critical spirit. So the way you deal with your own low self-esteem is you pick everything and everyone else apart. And you don't like what you're doing, but you can't help it. You just rip apart your friends, your family, to try and make yourself feel better. Some of you, you might be stuck in a lust-filled prison. And you clicked and you looked, you clicked and you looked, and you're thinking, I'm not going to do it again. God, help me to never do it again. But then you end up doing it again. And you feel sick, you feel ashamed, but you just can't get out. 
For some of you, it might be the wrong type of relationship. You go back, he mistreats you, you find someone else who mistreats you again. So what do you do when you know it's not God's best? You find yourself, well, and you find yourself barely dressed and ashamed, and you can't quite figure out, how did I get here? Well, I came today to tell you about the faithfulness and the goodness and the grace of God that is available to each and every one of you at this moment. The faithfulness of God. Paul said it this way. He said, our God is faithful. Our God is always faithful. Our God is so faithful that, when, that he will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But listen to me. When you're tempted, when you're trapped, when you're stuck, when you feel like you're in a prison and there's no way out, he says, our God will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's always grace. There's always potential for freedom. He always gives you a way out. Our God is faithful. He is faithful and he will give you a way out. So what do you do when you're tempted? I hope you'll understand this powerful truth is that every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. Every temptation is an invitation to depend on Jesus. Every time you feel trapped, it's an invitation to depend on his grace and his love and his forgiveness. So what do you do when you feel trapped? You recognize that he gives you a way out. He doesn't look down on you. He doesn't say, I'm embarrassed by you. I'm ashamed of you. Now go do whatever you want. No, he says, go be free. Because of my grace, you can be free. It's an invitation Friends, when I met Jesus, and I mean Jesus in a very new and real way, like this personal relationship with Jesus, I discovered I was free. He met me in the darkest corners of my life that I tried to keep from everyone, my wife included, and I discovered that even there was his unconditional love and grace. So if you can't control your drinking, your shopping, your eating, your whatever it is, you fill in that blank, stop trying to do it on your own power. Stop trying to white-knuckle it. When you accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you tap into a power that is greater than what you currently have in your own body. He fills you with his Holy Spirit, which raised him from the dead. In my weakness, the power of Christ became strong. And with the help of Christ, I was no longer a slave to sin. Now, of course, he used counselors, mentors, accountability partners, a great supportive wife. But he used all those people to show me his love and grace by people that I would confide in and I would say, I need help. And they would open their arms and hug me and say, I see God working in your life. I love you. How can I help you? Go your way. Walk in your truth. There's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is I got caught. I'm so sorry I got caught. Like the first time I got a speeding ticket along the link, I was doing about 130 and a 90. And the cop pulls me over and I'm bawling because I think I had my G2 at the time. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he's like, yeah, I know you're sorry you got caught. I'm like, ooh, there's some truth to that. It stings a little. But repentance is something entirely different. Re means to turn. Pent is to that which is high, like the penthouse. It's to turn from the lower things of the world to the higher things of God. Go be free, sin no more. It's all about the re. And some of you, you need to re return to God. 
So Pastor Craig Rochelle put some re-words together in a sentence, and his sentence goes like this. When you rebuke the enemy and return to God by repenting of your sins and receiving Christ, your spirit is reborn, your mind is renewed, your life is rebuilt, and while you're reconciled by the grace of Jesus Christ, you reap the rewards of relationship, causing revival to break free. Whew, what a sentence. But it's all about the re. When you feel trapped, when you feel caught, when you feel broken, and and shamed, what Jesus does not say is, that wasn't good. Now go do what makes you happy. No, he says, I've got a better path for you. I'm not going to let anyone else throw stones at you. Go be free, because holiness and happiness are not at odds. They're actually really connected. You were created to walk in truth, and that's where you'll find real lasting joy. Let's just spend a moment praying, and then we'll segue into communion. But Heavenly Father, today I just pray that you do a work in our lives. We submit our hearts to you. God, I pray for those who might need a little bit more grace today, who may feel trapped, who may feel stuck, and just feel spiritually flat. God, I just pray that you pour out your grace upon them. Remind them of your love, of your goodness, of your your promise to be with us. God, I thank you so much for your grace and for your strength when we're weak. Your grace is so sufficient for us. So God, I pray today for those who feel stuck. Because you are faithful, show us a way out because you always provide a way out. Give us the courage to take a step of faith out from that which holds us hostage and toward following you. God, let the truth set us free. I pray for miraculous healing from bondage, from strongholds. Set us free so that we can follow you. God, may your church, may your children feel your love, feel your grace. And may we go and be free starting today. Not to live for the lower promises of this world, but to live for the higher truth of following you. God, help us to leave our life of sin, to walk in a life of truth. And God, as we prepare for Easter, may we just remember your sacrifice. That you came to this earth to meet us where we were, but to set us free. You became the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. You died in our place. But yet three days later, you were raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, which you now offer to each and every one of us. So anyone, including those who are far from you, anyone who calls on your name, that our sins would be forgiven, and that we would be made new, forgiven, whole, complete, and spiritually healed. So God, for anyone under the weight and the burden of sin, I pray that we repent, that we turn away from it, that we turn away from the lower things of this world and turn to you. 
and the higher truths you've promised. So Jesus, we give you our life. Forgive us of our sins. Make us new. Fill us with your spirit so we can walk in the truth and follow your ways and share your love. Our lives are not our own. We give it all to you. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.